There we go, we're on. You know, I'm thinking we're not at the point now. We're gonna have to come up with a name for, for this group. It's gonna have to be Tay and, you know, <clears throat> I'm not sure. We're gonna start taking some suggestions for Tay and the band. Tay and Rising Praise or something, I don't know. It's gonna come up with something. Oh, I'm seeing, man, we're gonna, we're gonna do like, you know, recordings and also this is gonna be great. All right. Good morning, everyone. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We're closing out our series on Acts chapters 1 through 9 today. Uh, we'll pick up the rest of the book this fall. So we're right about at the hinge point of the story of the first Christians, the early church. Today we're in chapter 9, starting at verse 32, down through the end of the chapter. As Peter traveled around the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. We'll, we'll go with the Hebrew or the Aramaic word, Tabitha. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning to the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa. Many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Lots of little details and intrigue in this one. Father God, may you honor the reading of your word today, not only with hearing, but with the work of your spirit to bring understanding. Lord, the work of your Holy Spirit to draw us closer to you as your truth, your truth in history abides in us. Lord, may we see that very same power at work in us, miracles or not, to bring new life to those of us who are dead spiritually, to bring hope to those of us who are struggling with despair and a sense of hopelessness. Lord, for cherishing the moments that we have in this life that passes all too quickly. Father God, I ask that my words don't get in the way of your word as always, but I pray that your spirit will work to bring glory to you as your message is spoken through my words in some way, through the text in another way, but through you bringing it to life within our hearts and our minds as we yield ourselves to you. 
It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, your Son, O Father God, that we do pray this morning. Amen. You may be seated. And I want to say a very special welcome to those who are joining with us online today. Thanks for being a part of the Oak Park family. Remember, you can participate in today's service by texting in comments or questions, prayer praises or prayer requests to 805-481-7092. And if you are a new texter inner, I know that's not proper English, but if you're texting in for the first time, please include a name with a number. We'd love to pray for you by name and be able to follow up to see how we can help you grow spiritually. But thanks again for being a part of the things today. As we wrap up this series, this is the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ. This is the first few years of the people of Jesus being a thing. After Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, after that, his, the, the people who believed in him began to form into communities. And this message of Jesus dying and rising again, and through faith in him, forgiveness of sins being available, the hope of eternal life being an actual gift given by God with surety and confidence, that message spread. The apostles, those who had seen and witnessed Jesus alive after death, were given amazing power by the Holy Spirit to preach, to reason from the Scriptures, to heal people, to work miracles. And as those number of believers grew, the church grew quickly and exponentially from hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands very quickly within the first couple of years. Those who believed didn't necessarily gather together in large, huge spaces. They didn't have auditoriums like this. Instead, the, the life and the vibrancy of the church was in homes, small gatherings where people would get together in the name of Jesus. And at some point in the day, they would, they would practice what I usually call the core four. They would somehow receive teaching from the apostles whether in person or whether it would be an orally transmitted tradition or a teaching of Jesus. So they would, they would gather together, they would focus on hearing about Jesus. Then they would have fellowship. And fellowship isn't just coffee and donuts. Fellowship, oh, coffee and donuts do aid fellowship, that's for certain. Fellowship is, is, is sharing of life. It is bonding, it is uniting together, it is caring for one another. It is genuine interest and involvement in one another's lives. It's being in community. It's having something in common that bonds us deeper together than economics or political ideology or sports teams or anything else. They would focus on the breaking of the bread and this is, this is language for they would have a meal together. They would eat together, and in the midst of the meal, they would stop, and they would take some of the bread, and they would pray, and they would dedicate that to the sacrifice of Jesus. And then they would partake in unison as they demonstrated their faith and their dependence upon Jesus, dying for them to take away their sin. And then they would pass around the wine and they would partake remembering the blood of Jesus that was poured out so that forgiveness of sins could happen. And then they would pray together. These little dynamic communities were 
just saturating the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem probably had a population of about 100,000 at this time. The estimates of the early church can raise as high as twenty to 25,000. That's a huge number of Christians in that city. The gospel was growing. People were coming to faith. But the issue was not for the church just to grow numerically. The church was to grow geographically. The kingdom of God was to expand. That was what the mission that Jesus gave his disciples. Moments before Jesus finally returned to heaven, After the resurrection, he had appeared and and disappeared. He had hung out with the apostles and other disciples. He had taught, he instructed, he had encouraged, he explained things over a period of 40 days. But at the end of that 40 days, it was time to return to heaven for good, to, to sit at the right hand of God the Father, to reign and to rule, to work in this world, his work out his reign among the kingdoms of this earth, by the building of his kingdom within those kingdoms. But moments before that ascension, moments before that return, he told those 11 apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But the first two to four years of the church, they had, they had parked in Jerusalem. That's where they stayed They evidently had not ventured too far outside of the city because the church was growing so quickly and so rapidly. There was a lot of needy people, and the apostles were busy. But Jesus had commanded them that they would be the ones to take their testimony. See, they were the eyewitnesses. Their testimony was powerful. They were to take it outside of Jerusalem. There's another command that goes back just a little bit earlier than that. The same apostles were commanded by Jesus. They were given a mandate that would be the template for their mission, and it would become the template of the mission for every Christian. The disciples were to make more disciples. That's now known as the Great Commission. They were to make disciples who then make disciples. That's the mission for every believer in Jesus. The great commission is recorded there in Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means there is no authority above Jesus. Politics, economics, military power, Anything else, Jesus is the sole authority. That's why we give him sole allegiance. Those other powers may take life, but they do not take souls. Jesus commands and controls the souls. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, because of his authority, go and make disciples of all nations. Nations there is, is, is the language ta-ethni. Make disciples among every ethnicity. You see, Christianity is not just Jewish. It is not just reserved for those who have the right bloodlines, the right heritage, the right kind of DNA. 
The message of Jesus is for every single human being, regardless of ethnicity, skin color, background, socioeconomic status, whatever it is. Make disciples of all nations, every ethnicity, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, the, the, the direct mission given to the apostles was, you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But the mandate, the template for them to be witnesses was to make disciples. And a disciple is someone who believes in Jesus and then seeks to make others disciples as well. That was the mission Jesus gave, but the apostles and the first Christians stayed put in Jerusalem. The kingdom was growing, but it was not expanding. So it was time for God to move, to break the church out of Jerusalem, to take the gospel ultimately to the ends of the earth. It would take the public execution of a powerful and persuasive preacher named Stephen to dislodge the church from Jerusalem. Upon Stephen's death, the Jewish religious leadership enacted a brutal crackdown. You see, Christians, the, those Jews who had, become, who had come to believe in Jesus, believed that Jesus was the Messiah. For those who did not accept Jesus as the Messiah, they saw it as the ultimate blasphemy. They were, heres they were heretics. They were abandoning the faith of Yahweh. And as such, they were deserving of death. And a brutal crackdown came upon those who professed faith and allegiance to Jesus as Lord, as Messiah. As those house churches were raided, as the men and women gathered around tables to commemorate the sacrifice of Jesus, as they were beaten, as they were assaulted, as they were brutalized, as they were arrested, as they were then taken to trial, as they were then convicted, and many of them were then executed for the sin of blasphemy, the Christians fled. They fled to Judea. They fled to Samaria and to other places. And as they fled, they didn't cower in fear. Yes, they, they ran because they, they, they did fear for their lives. But as they went, they continued to practice the core four. They would still hear from the apostles. They would still recite the teachings of Jesus. They would still fellowship. They would still break bread together in their homes. They would still pray together. That's the, the backbone of Christian community that cannot be broken. And as they went to these other villages and towns and regions, people were then attracted to this, to this lifestyle and this type of love these people who believed in Jesus demonstrated. You see, they took with them their grace, with them, they took with them their compassion, their generosity, their servant hearts. And as the church scattered, the church expanded and grew. The 12 apostles still stayed in Jerusalem, however, a Holy Spirit-empowered preacher named Philip was preaching in the region of Samaria. 
And many Samaritans accepted Jesus as the Messiah. This was such a huge step because Samaritans were related to the Jews ethnically because they had Jewish blood in their heritage. But they were considered apostates. They were considered half-breeds because they had, they had intermarried and interbred with, with other uh, ethnicities, other, the, the occupying nations that had come into that region. They worshipped Yahweh, but they worshipped Yahweh differently, and they worshipped Yahweh in a different place with a few different customs. So in the Jewish mindset, they were half-breeds. They were apostates. They were basically considered even worse than Gentiles. (laughs) And Gentiles were all non-Jews. So for the Samaritans to become believers in Jesus, to share in the very same gospel, to receive the very same Holy Spirit was a monumentous occasion. As the Samaritans believe, the apostles get word that the Samaritans are turning to Jesus as well. Peter and John, the two primary apostles, go and see, and then they're there to to confirm the conversions, to convey the, the Holy Spirit upon this new group of Samaritan Christians in the very same way that the Jewish Christians had been so empowered. This marks the very first time that the apostles themselves began to fulfill Jesus' command to go outside of Jerusalem. And they went to those who were so slighted and so disregarded and so disparaged by the Jewish community. They went to the Samaritans. This is how the church began to grow and how it how we see in the, in the book of Acts how the message of Jesus begins to incrementally discover and experience what it means to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You see, ultimately, the Gentiles, those who were so far from God, those who were never God's people, through Jesus would one day be accepted, be included, be offered the very same gospel of forgiveness, love, life, and eternity with the people of God who had been God's people for eons. That was the goal. But because of prejudices, because of fear, because of cultural differences and things like that, the expansion of the gospel to these other peoples had to happen in incremental steps. It's like, you know, have you ever heard the story of the, the, the frog in the kettle? If you put a frog in a kettle of water, he acclimates, he's fine. And then over time, if you turn up the heat just one degree at a time, the frog will stay there and will keep acclimating to the water and eventually the, the, you will boil the frog and the frog will die. It's that acclimation, it's that small steps to get to a very extreme end. It was the same way with the gospel. The apostles especially had to be incrementally introduced to the expansion of the gospel into those people that historically would never be considered worthy of being God's people. The gospel expands. As Peter and John go to Samaria, then on their way back to Jerusalem, they decide to continue preaching in other Samaritan villages. 
This had to be very hard for the Apostle John. If you may remember his story, you see, Jesus treated Samaritans very kindly. He would preach in their villages. He would would fellowship and associate with them, something most Jewish rabbis would not do. But there was one Samaritan, you see, the animosity ran both ways, and there was one Samaritan village said that we don't want anything to do with that traveling Jewish preacher named Jesus. Just keep on walking, Jesus. You and your entourage just go. You're not welcome here. As they heed their wishes, they go outside of town. The apostle John and his brother James, they were a tad hot-headed. And as they just descend the hillside out of the village, James and John give a little suggestion to Jesus. They said, you know, Jesus, that was so disrespectful. Don't know how you're taking it. We should do something about it. You know, we remember reading in the Hebrew Bible about a prophet who called down fire from heaven and incinerated people for their sin. That would be kind of cool. Do you want us to do that now? This village disrespected you. These Samaritans, they're they're dogs anyway. Let's just go ahead and wipe them out. Jesus rebuked James and John for that. And now, just a, a couple of years later, John is the one preaching the message of Jesus in those Samaritan villages. And they too are becoming fellow Christians. But they return to Jerusalem. There's a little bit of a gap in the story in the book of Acts, so we don't know what the other apostles did. But we pick up our story here. Peter has finally been moved out of Jerusalem. He's on a preaching tour, so to speak. He's still in Judea. He's still going through villages. But he's meeting with Christians who have escaped Jerusalem, and he's finding that they have regathered, relocated in these other towns and villages. And the community of those who believe in Jesus is still strong. It's still growing he comes to the little town of Lydda, northwest of Jerusalem. It's about 25 miles northwest, and there was already a church meeting there. Luke says that Peter met with the Lord's people. <clears throat> that wording, the Lord's people, is actually the word saints. You see, the word saints is a word for Christians. It is not a word for those who are super spiritual. It's simply for those who belong to God. It's it's the ones who Jesus has made holy with his forgiveness, his love, his redemption, his indwelling Holy Spirit. So Peter goes and he joins up with some of the fellow saints, other believers in Jesus. As I said, it's all those who belong to God through faith in Jesus. There he meets a man named Aeneas. Aeneas is an unusual name for a Jewish man unless he is a Hellenistic Jew. And a Hellenistic Jew is one, is a Jewish person ethnically, but culturally they were Greek. Their primary language was the Greek language, not Aramaic. Their style of dress, their their inclusion in the culture at large made them very different and distinct from the average devout Jew who distanced themselves from Greek culture. The name Aeneas, by the way, 
is the name of a rather famous hero in Homer's Iliad and in some other works from the Greek author Homer. So he's a Hellenistic Jew. He's a believer in Jesus, but he speaks Greek. And for Peter, this still would have been a little bit of a struggle because Peter was a, a Jewish Jew through and through. And in a lot of ways, those Jews who acclimated to Greek culture were still seen somewhat as, as traitors in, a, in, in one sense, but as either weak-willed or wishy-washy in others. There was a little bit of a cultural divide. So Peter is learning to take steps to those outside of his comfort zone. And he ministers to this Hellenistic Jew who is paralyzed. We don't know what happened. We do know that his paralysis was not lifelong. It was not from birth. Evidently, at one point, he had been whole and he had been healthy. He had been able to work and to do things and to travel. But somehow, either through a sickness or an accident, he had become paralyzed. That means his legs no longer worked. He had been bedridden for eight years. In that society at that time, there were no hospitals. There was no social safety network for those who were disabled. Life was very tough. The wording that Luke uses here for Matt is, 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 is a word that differentiated it from the word bed. It, was, it wasn't a bed he was laying on. It was literally a mat, a floor mattress. It probably indicates that he was very poor. And it could, have be that, it could be that if, if he had a family, his family who had depended upon him for income may have been suffering great poverty. He would have been a huge burden upon this family. So Peter heals him. That power from the Holy Spirit that Peter and the other apostles and a few select others had to work great miracles of healing, Peter heals him. He tells him to get up and to roll up his mat. Peter emulates Jesus, but he always points to the healings coming from Jesus. It's never Peter's ability. It's never Peter's authority. It's solely the name, the authority, the power of Jesus who heals. That's one of the biggest differences between the people you will see on TV and in big rallies nowadays who, who claim to have the ability to heal. They use the name of Jesus in one way, but they disavow the name of Jesus with their lifestyle, their personality, their pomp, and everything else. And I'm not ridiculing them too strongly, but I am going to ridicule them. You see, the way that Jesus heals is not showy and flashy, extravagant. It is not focused on the individual who does the healing. It is the focus upon Jesus and the one who is healed. Those in our day and age who may have the gift of healing, I am pretty certain they're going to heal the very same way that Jesus did, which was usually very low-key and very discreet. 
and they did not take up an offering afterwards. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tim. It is the authority and the power of Jesus that heals this man. Peter is merely the conduit. So Peter emulates Jesus. The command from when Jesus healed those who were paralyzed, get up, take up your mat. Peter does the same wording that Jesus used. And as with Jesus, the healing, the full restoration of muscle and movement was immediate. If you've ever had any kind of an injury where your, where your arm or your leg has had to be immobilized for even a, just a few days, the muscle deterioration is, is amazing. Uh, I broke my right elbow in a horrific softball accident uh, three or four years ago now. <sighs> From the height of glory to the depths of despair, I hadn't hit a ball that far in like 10 years. I was busy watching how far it went as the left fielder was on a dead sprint behind him, feeling so good about myself, till I was realizing that I wasn't getting very far to first base. And as I realized the left fielder finally had the ball, I'm like, I at least need to get a double out of this. So I turned, oh, first base was right there. I tripped over first base. This is a lot of body to hit hard ground. <laughs> Broke my elbow through the great work of Dr. Sarah Willett in her physical therapy. My arm was brought back mostly to, to life eventually. But the thing that was so amazing is I'm right-handed. My right hand, that's my strength. My, my arm was immobilized for only nine days. And then they take the, they take the brace off. They say, you gotta start moving your arm. And I'm like, but it hurts. I'm like, that's good. I'm like, you're not the one hurting, but it's good. The amount of muscle mass and strength that I lost in nine days was ridiculous. No offense to Sarah, but it is very embarrassing when your physical therapist, and once again, this is not, not a psycho, not but, but as a woman, has a stronger grip than you. <laughs> she just would grab that thing and she would squeeze it the whole way, and I'm like, <laughs> I could hardly move it at first. Nine days. This man's legs did not work for eight years. Could you imagine the atrophy the, the, this, the, the, the decay of, of limbs that would not be used immediately, fully. I guess, Tim, yes, yes, you can't imagine, I bet. All right. And Tim, I wish I had the power to heal you because that way we'd be able to move you. That way we'd be able to move you to the back. But uh, No, I'm still sure you'd be right in the front. Yep. Uh, jumping and praising God. But for the miracle of, of those, 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 those muscles and everything to work perfectly instantly is an incredible miracle. And as this man was healed, he joined Peter in talking to others and going to other villages because Luke records that people saw the man healed and believed. It wasn't just the story. It wasn't just that they heard of a miracle. They actually saw him and saw for themselves and heard for themselves the testimony he gave of being healed in the name of Jesus. We move to another amazing miracle. 
Peter continues his journey north. He goes from Lydda to Joppa. It's about 12 miles northwest. It's a neat little coastal town. It's a major port city in that era. It's even gotten more significant now. It's, a, it's a, now the city of Jaffa. And it's a, tub, a suburb of Tel Aviv, still a port city. Very significant place biblically and historically. But there, there's another, another saint, another Christian, a, a lady named Tabitha. She's died. Luke includes both her Aramaic name, Tabitha, and her Greek name, Dorcas. They both mean gazelle. So that was her name. Luke here also uses a term that's never used anywhere else in the entire New Testament. He calls her a female disciple. It's an unusual version or form of the word. It's not used to denote female disciples anywhere else in the Bible. But here it is. A unique moniker for a very precious, unique woman. He includes both of her names. That is unique. He gives so much detail about her life and lifestyle and the importance. He talks about her piety, of her good works, her generosity, her serving the poor, how dearly loved she is. She's an industrious seamstress. She's a devout, generous, dearly loved woman. She's also most likely a widow. She has died. Her body is prepared for burial, which in that culture and in that day, the preparation for burial was immediate because most bodies were buried the day of death. During Jesus' ministry, he had given his 12 disciples the authority to raise the dead. There's no record of them ever doing that, though. They had the power. There's just no record of them actually raising people from the dead as they went on their preaching tours during the ministry of Jesus. This is the first time in the New Testament someone other than Jesus brings a person back to life. Peter does it by patterning his approach identical to what Jesus did when he brought someone back to life. Very similar to Luke chapter 8 or Mark 5 where he raised a young girl from death. You see, there are some similarities. Both Jesus and Peter clear the room of the onlookers. The mourners need space to work. Similarities that Jesus took the hand of the young girl, Peter would take the hand of Tabitha. Both Peter and Jesus simply gave a two-word command separated by one letter. For the little girl, Jesus spoke, Talitha kum, little girl, arise. Peter says, Tabitha kum, gazelle, arise. There's a few differences. Before this miracle, Peter kneeled and he prayed. The text provides no extra details, but my guess is he prayed humbly and fervently. Peter himself being in a humble position is an amazing story in all and of itself, true to the work of Jesus. When Jesus healed the little girl, he had her parents and his disciples, Peter, James, and John there with him. Those are the only people in the room. Here it's just Peter by himself. 
Peter takes her hand after she wakes up. He helps her stand. She is alive. He calls in the widows to be witnesses. They saw her die. They saw her live. It's an amazing miracle. Why are these two miracles here? They're seemingly inserted. Sometimes they kind of raise the expectation of, well, why doesn't Jesus do that today? Why don't the apostles, why didn't they just keep passing on their power to do that? Why do we not see such miraculous miracles today? Well, there's a couple things on that. Just because we don't see them doesn't mean they don't happen. Jesus quite often in his healings would heal people and he would say, don't tell anyone, just praise God. Sometimes he would say, you know, he spread the word, but sometimes he would say, keep it quiet. I think those who do have the ability to heal today do so similar to Jesus. It is very quiet, it is very discreet, it is very humble, And God receives the glory. There's no Facebook postings. There's no Instagram posts. Hashtag miracle once again. Thank God there's no TikTok videos about it. So healings are done. But the healings seemed to serve a purpose for a specific time. That time to to bring validation to the preaching of the apostles, to point people to Jesus. And yes, there are virtually no other records of anyone rising from the dead. There's one more included in the book of Acts later. But it never seems to be widespread, never seems to be standard operating procedure for the the apostles or anyone else. Because ultimately our goal is not to just keep living here. Our goal is to to live eternally with Jesus. It is the far better. There's some other things in that too. And if you have any questions about that, I would love to talk with you. My email's on the bottom of the sermon notes. Feel free to email, call the office. We can talk more about that. But these miracles serve two purposes. Number one, they they affirm the power of Jesus still working in people's lives. And number two, they serve a purpose in Peter's life and in his ministry. You see, because everything in the book of Acts is building to a certain point. Those who were considered outside of the people of God, outside of the will of God, God is bringing them in. And so these little minor steps of getting out of Jerusalem, going to those who are either culturally different or those who are on the the fringes of society, it's going to culminate with the Gentiles hearing the message of Jesus. So Peter takes these steps. He, He heals. He's beginning to have a change within himself. And we see that in just one little tiny verse. It's so easy to miss. Verse 43, Peter stayed in Joppa at the home of Simon the Tanner. You see, this is part of Peter's obedience to the Great Commission. 
He stays for an extended time in the home of a man who worked with the skins of dead animals. In Jewish religious law, that person is unclean. That is not a person you hang out with, you associate with. It is a person you keep their dis- your distance from. It is a messy, gross, ugly, smelling occupation. Smelly, not smelling. Smelly occupation. You're working with hides and, and all the, the processes for preparing them for certain things. They were deemed unclean, and a good kosher Jewish man would not willingly, or at least for very long, associate with someone in such an occupation. He was unclean. One more step for Peter to the next chapter. The ultimate category of the unclean who would become clean through faith in Jesus the Gentiles. That's the next step. We'll get, yeah, us. We'll get to that in September. So hang tight. A couple things to wrap up, just some, some points to ponder for application. Discipleship equals kingdom growth, not just personal spiritual growth. Every believer in Jesus is called to be a disciple. That means we're a student, we're a learner of how to live, how to believe, how to function in life by looking to Jesus and Jesus alone. But as a disciple, it's not about Bible study and growth and deepening the prayer life. It's not about personal piety or righteousness Those things are all good and all important. But a disciple is to be someone who not only grows spiritually, but expands the kingdom. Takes what they learn from Jesus and passes that on to someone else. Every disciple is to help make other people disciples. So in your life, how many hours of Bible study and prayer How many hours of church, of listening to sermons? How many hours of worshiping through praise songs and all things have you done? That's not bad. That's good. I pray that it increases. But who have you led to become a disciple of Jesus? Who have you helped see Jesus more clearly and to follow more closely? With all you have learned and all you have done, all you've experienced with Jesus, who have you passed that on to? You see, we're disciples called to make disciples. Application question number two. How will you be remembered or described by those who mourn you? The grief at the loss of the life of Tabitha it's beautiful and it's power and it's powerful and it's poignant. She was remembered for her 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 work of the work of her hands, but all but also just her generosity, her care, her compassion, her love. I think it is a good prayer and a good goal that when each of us are remembered, we too will be remembered for our love our good works, those things we have done to impact the lives of others, 
not just being a good person, but a person who has really contributed to this world. Application question number three. When's the last time you prayed for a miracle? It takes a lot of faith to pray for a genuine miracle. Pray for someone who has cancer to be healed. To pray for someone who has a completely seemingly impossible situation for that situation to be reversed or to be changed. I think sometimes we get into the mode of praying a little bit too tepidly or too timidly. It's okay to ask God for big things. It's okay to ask God for great, miraculous things. Because maybe, just maybe, he really will answer it. And lastly, go into all the world means as you go. So how do you show, how do you speak the gospel as you go about your daily life? With coworkers, with family members, with the people you know at the gym, with those who are parts of either community uh, groups that you're a part of, your level of influence, how are you leveraging your influence to represent Jesus well? I had such a neat opportunity just, uh, just last week. Had to stop and pick up a few things at Vaughn's. And, uh, I mean, obviously being a pastor carries a little bit of a, of a, different, a different weight and whatever. But there at Vaughn's, uh, there was a young girl who used to attend Oak Park. She hasn't been here probably in well, at least three to four years. She hasn't been here since COVID started. I did not even recognize her. Teenagers change a lot in four years. <laughs> so I felt horrible I didn't know her because she obviously knew me by name. And so we, re- we reconnected, asked how her family was doing. We had that, went on my, went on my way. Right, that was two weeks ago. And then last week I was back in Vaughn's again. It's right on the way home. I have to stop, pick up stuff quite often. She was there. She was, she was uh, the one you know, doing the, the, the bagging and stuff. And she goes, I think it's really important that you came in today and came through my line. I'm like, why is that? She goes, I'm going to walk out with you. I'm like, okay. As we start to walk, she begins to tear up. She just says, I'm struggling in my faith. I'm struggling with the things going on in life. She goes, I'm distanced from God. I haven't been to church in forever. She goes, would you please pray with me? And I said, yes, I will. It'll be an honor. So right there in the doors by the shopping carts, I prayed for her. Simple little things. Wasn't on my agenda. Wasn't on my shopping list. But God used that moment. And I guarantee if you pray, if you avail yourselves to simply asking God to use you at some point in a conversation to bless somebody else's life, there's gonna be a conversation with a coworker where they ask you a question, they bring something up. There, there's gonna be someone that, you're, that, you, that you work out with or that you, that you connect with in some way that is going to be a moment that can impact eternity. So be ready and be prepared.